is that a passage that I think about a great deal in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul summarizes the Christian faith. He said this was the faith that he received, and this is the faith that, that they received in the beginning. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose on, again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. So when Paul says he died and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures, he means in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. They didn't have the New Testament at the time he was writing. So he's talking about that. And I think Jesus is even more explicit in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31 there. Uh, he, he made a similar statement before he was crucified. He says in Luke chapter 18, starting verse 31, Then he looked, he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He'll be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not know the things which were spoken. So at this time, the apostles heard Jesus say this, all these things are going to be fulfilled about the Son of Man, the suffering in detail, and his death, and his resurrection on the third day. In Luke chapter 24, he, after he's resurrected from the dead, he opens the minds of the apostles and explains that all the things in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were fulfilled. And he said, thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That's Luke 24 and verses 44 to 46. So I hope you're, I hope you're ready for, to be challenged in this class because I have a couple questions for you. First question, and you can think about this with all the things we've covered recently, particularly in the book of Acts, we touched on a number of these things. Question number one. So we're in the Old Testament Okay, this includes the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Think about this. Does it say that Christ died for our sins? And where does it say he'd be mocked, insulted, spit upon, and scourged? Where does it say that? So this is, uh, think about that in your own mind. If you can answer that question or not, if you're prepared to. Actually, when we're going through the book of Acts, we did touch on a number of these things. So the big one would be Isaiah chapter 52, 53 about he, 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 he died for our sins, particularly if you follow the, uh, the, the, the Septuagint, the wording of Septuagint there, and also Isaiah chapter 50, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 69. So a number of passages in Scripture, and you probably thought about some of them, at least, at least Isaiah chapter 53, that talk about Christ dying for our suffering and dying for our sins, okay? Now, that was the easy question. Now the tough one. Where in the Old Testament does it say that the Christ would rise from the dead on the third day? Where's the prophecy? Where are the prophecy or prophecies about that? Resurrection on the third day. Uh, now, when we're going through the book of Acts, we did touch on just walking through the book of Acts, all the things that the, the, the apostles are quoting or alluding to in the book of Acts that talk about the resurrection of Christ. So we did, we did cover actually quite a few prophecies about the resurrection. Let's set the third day, the, the on the third day part aside, but just where does it say in the scriptures that the Christ would rise from the dead? Well, Peter talks about that in Psalm 2. He starts off on the day of Pentecost where he quotes from Psalm 16. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you let my body see decay. That's, that's one about the resurrection of the Christ. Peter alludes in chapter 2 to 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, the prophecy about God would raise up a king from the seed of David. In Acts chapter 3, we talked about Peter said that the, the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, that God would raise up a prophet like Moses, was fulfilled in him literally raising Jesus from the dead. In Acts 15, we talked about the prophecy James quoted from Amos chapter 9, that after the tabernacle had fallen down and would be raised up again, he was speaking figuratively about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then the word would go out to the Gentiles after that. 
In our psalm series, we discussed that with Psalm 3. A lot of early Christian writers saw a prophecy of the resurrection about that. In our Genesis series, going back a ways, Genesis 49, about the, 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 the lion that would lie down and sleep and would, would rise up again. And, uh, and we taught other lessons on our, our website, and I'll put some other links in the notes here of, of, of things that we've covered that talk about the resurrection. However, none of those prophecies that I mentioned that we have talked about over the last year or two, none of those prophecies talk about being raised from the dead on the third day, do they? They talk about him being raised from the dead, but nothing about specifically about the third day. So, um, you know, I've heard this, this question comes up in, in Christian circles and Christian teaching circles. And I, I even heard uh, of one Christian teacher who was, who was well-known who... Was, was musing in his mind. He said, you know, actually, I don't think there are any prophecies about Christ being raised specifically on the third day. There are some interesting things in the Old Testament that happened on the third day in a few places, but there aren't actually any prophecies about it. But the problem is you run up against what Jesus said because Jesus said specifically that all the things will be fulfilled that are written about in the prophets, including that the Son of Man would be raised from the dead on the third day. So uh, we've we got a problem here. Some early Christian writers point to the, the statement in, in Hosea chapter 6, where it says uh, from the, the Orthodox Study Bible, it says, After two days he will heal us, and the third day we shall rise and live before him. Now, whatever. I mean, that, <laughs> maybe they're right there, but that seems a little bit... A little cloudy, a little, a little hard to hard to connect with to me personally. That that is, that is a prophecy about Jesus. Maybe very well be. Uh, early Christians saw that. But uh, after two days, he will heal us. On the third day, we shall rise and live before him. So this is this is uh, something. Something's going on about rising on the third day. So maybe that that possibly would be uh, a prophecy. Now I want to back up about prophecy in general. There are two styles. There are two general categories of prophecy in the Old Testament. And, and this is described as, as Western and Eastern style prophecies. And what, at first, I read David Rousseau's book, um, um, The, um, it's not, uh, Common Sense. That was the book I read. David Rousseau's book, Common Sense, came out several years ago. And he talked about that in one of the chapters about there are two styles of prophecies. There's Western style prophecy and Eastern style prophecy. So this isn't talking about west coast of the U.S. and east coast. This is talking about western, the western and Asia, eastern being Asia, being you know India, China, Persia, the east, uh, versus western, which would be more European. So these are the two styles. The the Isaiah famous Isaiah fifty three prophecy would be a western style prophecy, more straightforward. Here's what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Something's going to happen in the future. Here's what's going to happen. That's western style prophecy. Okay, the Eastern style prophecy, this is more like a parable. It's a story that's in the form of an allegory where all the elements of the story represent something else. And think about an onion that is, they're all layers that all kind of, kind of follow each other. So it, there's a pattern or a type of something that will follow it later on. So a lot of times there's a lot of trying to send a detail packed into the Eastern style prophecies. The most famous one would be in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb. You think about the whole story of the Passover lamb. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that the Passover lamb represented Jesus. And the, the elements in that story, this is an allegory here. It's a true story, but it also has allegorical significance. So think about this. It was a male lamb sacrificed at twilight on the eve of the Passover, which represented Jesus. It's exactly when he was crucified on the cross on the evening of the Passover. It was a chosen lamb without defect, foreshadowing that Christ would be without sin. The blood of the lamb is applied over the door frame of the house to protect the people from the destroyer. A memorial meal is, is, is had out of the flesh of the lamb that people would be having over and over again to commemorate this great event. We think of the Lord's Supper. 
And then the unusual requirement in there, it says that none of the lamb's bones would be broken. You know, last, last Sunday we looked at Psalm 34 where it says none of his bones would be broken. None, none of the, the, the righteous person, none of his bones would be broken. That's a prophecy. But there's also the prophecy is contained. That's a Western style prophecy. The Eastern style prophecy in the story of the Passover where none of the bones of the lamb would be broken because that was Jesus on the cross they broke the leg bones of the two thieves, but they didn't break his legs in fulfillment of a prophecy there. And then, of course, after the lamb is slain, this is the point that's made in 1 Corinthians, you have to get all the yeast out of the houses and out of the community. What does yeast represent? It's sin. It's the idea is that after the lamb is slain, we get rid of all the, the sin. Yeast is like sin because it tends to spread and take over everything. Okay? So... The whole story of the Passover lamb is an allegorical style prophecy like a parable where everything in, all the elements in the story represent other things. So they're Eastern and Western style prophecies. So uh, now let's think about what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 12. Let's turn there and read from the text. It's about the three days and, and th- the three days and three nights famous statement by Jesus Matthew chapter 12 starting in verse 38 and some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying teacher we want to see a sign from you but he answered and said to them an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this is the only sign that will be given. is the sign of the prophet Jonah, and he ties it back into the three days. So... A uh, little comment here. It says, it says and I'm reading from the New King James, it says Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And uh, the, uh, the King James, the American Standard, RSV, Dewey Reams, all use the traditional whale. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow along with that. The, the, uh, the, the, the Jonah, this is Jonah and the whale story. Instead of a great fish or some large sea monster or something like that. Uh, so, Many people would consider this statement by Jesus as a simile. Let me tell you what a simile is. You think of the word similar. Okay, it has some similarity to it. It's a simile. I'll give you an example of it. A simile is something that has one point of agreement with something else. And it has one way in which it's similar. Uh, For example, you see the words as or like in there to indicate the similarity. Peter, Paul, and even Jesus in Revelation... uh, say that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Okay? That's a simile. He's going to come like a thief in the light in the night. And what, what does that mean? It was going to come by surprise. You're not going to, you're going to be surprised when it happens. Just like a thief doesn't announce beforehand when he's, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't send you an, an, an advance notice when he's coming. It just happens. It's going to be ready for it. So there's one point of, of agreement, basically. Jesus uses another simile to, des- to describe how he feels about Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, 37, he says, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. So he says, I'm kind of like, I'm like, I'm like a hen who, who wants to gather uh, the, the chicks under my wings. So he's using a simile there, all right? This isn't a chicken prophecy. This is just a simile that he's using. All right? And then, then there's one statement where Jesus actually uses three similes in a single statement. So I, I like this. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, is, is sending the 12 apostles out to, to Israel. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So three different similes in there. So He's trying to convey something by using maybe basically one point of similarity in all these things. All right? So a lot of people think 
Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 12 is a simile. Just like, just like as a hen gathers the chicks, just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay? Uh, I'm going to make a case that that's not what he's doing here. It's not a simile. This is a full-blown allegorical style prophecy that he's alluding to. And uh, I'm going to lay out the evidence for that. You can, you can see it for yourself. It'd be just like the Passover lamb with all the elements of the story tie in to the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, when I say that this is an allegory, I don't mean to imply, I don't think it really happened. Okay? This is just like the, past, the sacrifice of the original Passover lamb was a, an historic event. Okay? But it also has allegorical significance. The same thing with the story of Jonah. I do not question that this event really happened as described in the scriptures. Now, this is obviously a miracle. You can't last for three days inside of a whale. I've heard people try to come up with inventive, creative ways that this is scientifically possible. It's not. It's a miracle. And, and, and all the all Hillary Christian writers said that from the beginning. said nobody can live for three days inside of a whale. It's not, you know, he didn't get... get he didn't get caught in his, in his navel cavity or something like that. He was in the belly of the whale, and he, he, he survived for three days, and it was a miracle, okay? Uh, just, to, just, to, just, to, just to clarify in case there's any doubt about that. So, text of Jonah. When, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, as Jonah was three days and three nights of the belly of the whale, okay, uh, basically... That is a direct quote from word for word from the Septuagint, from the Greek of Jonah 1.17, or in the Masoretic text be Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. So he's quoting directly, it's a direct quotation, word for word, letter for letter, from the old Greek Septuagint. And it's when I'm reading the early Christian writers who are talking about this, this is obviously that's the version that they're following, like a Justin Martyr in dialogue with Trypho. So I will defer to Jesus and the early Christians and just read along in an account that's based on the Septuagint to get a handle on when Jesus is quoting this, what does he have in mind? And when the early Christians are reading this, what did they hear? What did they, what did they think? What were they reading? So let's turn to Jonah chapter 1. So it's really, it's less, that's, that's, that's the introduction, but it's basically it's less about the story of Jonah. Okay. Jonah chapter 1. Let's read the first two verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach in it, for the cry of her wickedness has come up to me. So, uh, Read the whole story of Jonah. The only things you really learn about Jonah, Jonah's background, it says, okay, he's he's a he's a Jewish prophet, and he is the son of a man named Amittai. That's really all you learn. So, question is, when did he live? Uh, what's his background? Where's he from specifically? It doesn't say. However, there is one place. There's one other place in the Old Testament where it gives some information about Jonah's background. That's in 2 Kings chapter 14, or if you have a Bible that's based on the Septuagint, it's 4th Kingdom. So 2 Kings chapter 14. Let's read that. It's really the only other thing we know about Jonah in the Bible, but, but there's some, some important things here. 2 Kings 14, I'm going to read verses 23 to 25. In the 15th year of Amaziah the son of Joash, Jeroboam the son of Joash became king over Israel and Samaria and ruled for 41 years. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who led Israel into sin. He rescued the people from the territory of Israel from the entrance to Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord God of Israel spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. 
the prophet from Gath Hefer. So we learn a little bit more about Jonah. We learn, first of all, when he lived, he's living during the reign of the second Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, who was the king of Israel. So this is the time of the northern kingdom before the northern kingdom got hauled off into captivity in Assyria. So this was maybe 30 to 70 years during the, the reign of, this, of this, uh, this, this king of Israel before the end of the northern kingdom. So Jonah's ministry would have been somewhere around 780 years before the birth of Christ, give or take. Just to give you a little bit of a handle on when it was, when he lived. All right, so he was a prophet in the northern kingdom. Before that was taken into captivity ultimately by the Assyrians. And the other thing, it says he was from Gath Hefer. And I'm sure everybody in the room is just sitting at the edge of your seats wondering, where is Gath Hefer? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you that right now. Okay, where's Gath Hefer? And, and the other question is, well, who cares where Gath Hefer is? All right, that's a, that's a... So where's Gath Hefer? Gath Hefer, when Joshua goes into the land of Canaan, and they divide up the land for the different tribes. Gath Hefer is mentioned in Joshua 19, verse 13, as being within the borders of the land of Zebulon. Okay? In the New Testament, can you think of any scripture, any prophecy associated with the land of Zebulon? All right, so the border town in Zebulon. Matthew 4, verse 15 and 16. Land of Zebulon, land of Naphtali. By way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, a light has dawned. Here, Matthew is quoting the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So, in Matthew 4, it says that Jesus went from Nazareth, his hometown, which was in the land of Zebulun, to Capernaum, which is in Naphtali by the Sea of Galilee, to fulfill this prophecy. Okay? Uh, and Galilee was actually an old Gentile term. It appears in Joshua chapter 20, this, this region of Galilee. Okay? So, any significance to this? Possibly. So, uh, Jonah is from Gath Hefer. It's in the land of Zebulon. He is a prophet from Galilee. Okay, can you think of any other famous prophets from Galilee? <laughs> okay, I can. I can think of one. And I wonder, you know, how far apart are Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and Gath Hefer? Now, here's, here's where I have to cheat and go to a, go to a, a, a commentary, a Bible dictionary, something like that. Okay, basically, they're only three to five miles apart. They're right next to each other, basically. Or five to eight kilometers for people who think uh, metric. So is this a coincidence or is there something more going on here? That he, he's from a village from the same, same area where Jesus grew up. Uh, you know, John chapter 7, we, we discussed this when going through the gospel, the gospel of John. People were saying, wait a minute, Jesus, you can't be the Messiah because the Messiah, it cannot come from Galilee. The Messiah, where's, this, where's the Christ supposed to come from? He's supposed to come from Bethlehem in Judea in the south. He's not supposed to come from, from Galilee in the north. Of course, they didn't realize Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the south, but he grew up in Galilee of the north. And that was necessary, I think, to fulfill two prophecies Okay, the, the, one, the one in Isaiah and then the one in Micah that he had to be born, born in, uh, uh, in Bethlehem. So, so the, the, being born in the south and then growing up and being associated with the north and the light sh uh, coming out in, in Galilee was a fulfillment, a fulfillment of two prophecies. And also in John chapter 7 where they talk about, you know, some translations it says, the, uh, that says no prophet has come from Galilee or uh, a prophet has not come from Galilee. I mean, that, that's, to me, that's obviously, they don't mean that what they should be saying is the prophet didn't come from Galilee. So this, there's no indefinite article. There's no A or, or an in, in, uh, in Greek language. So that, that depends on the translator. So 
Everybody from Galilee would have known, well, Jonah is a prophet from Galilee. So they're talking about the prophet to come, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 18. We talked about that in, uh, in our lesson in John 7. So let's read from Jonah chapter 1. Let's read about this prophet from Galilee and see if there might be any other parallels between, besides coming from Galilee and the three days and three nights in the whale that Jesus refers to. And ask ourselves the question, could this possibly be a detailed allegorical style prophecy? Let's consider the story of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read through that and ask yourself the question as we're going through it. Start from the beginning again. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach in it. For the cry of her wickedness has come up to me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, paid his fare, boarded the ship to set sail with him, Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord raised up a great wind upon the sea, and there came about a mighty tempest, and the ship was in danger of breaking up. And the mariners were afraid and cried out each one to his God, and they cast out the cargo of the ship into the sea, attempting to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and had gone to sleep and was snoring. That's a little detail in, in the Septuagint that's not in the Hesric text. A little, little color there. And not only was he asleep, he was snoring. I mean, this guy is out. <clears throat> Verse 6, The captain came to him and said, Why are you snoring? Get up and call upon your God, that your God may keep us safe so we don't perish. And each one said to his shipmate, Come, let us cast lots and find out on whose account this calamity is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then they said to them, Tell us, what's your occupation? Where do you come from? From what country and people are you? And he said to them, I am a servant of the Lord, and I worship the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you did? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What should we do for you that the sea will calm itself for us? For the sea continued to be tempestuous and the waves rose up even higher. And Jonah said to them, Take me up and cast me into the sea and the sea will grow calm for you. For I know this great tempest is upon you because of me. And the men tried hard to return to the land, but weren't able to do so. For the sea arose and grew even more tempestuous against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, nor bring righteous blood upon us. For you, O Lord, have brought this about. So they took up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord even more. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and vowed vows. So basically, uh, so Jonah, Jonah's given a mission by God to go to the capital of Assyria, foreign empire, which is threatening them. It's uh, basically northern Iraq today. And he doesn't want to go. And he, he goes in a different direction. He gets on a boat trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. The Lord sends a great storm upon the sea. And then Jonah is sleeping in the boat. And the Septuagint says he's snoring. And the, 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 the sailors are afraid they're going to be lost at sea. And they wake up Jonah and question him. They want him to call on his God. They draw lots. And Jonah gets the, gets the short straw or whatever it is that they, that they use for growing lots. He's the one who caused the catastrophe. And he tells them that they need to cast him overboard. And reluctantly, they don't want to do that. But reluctantly, they, they do cast him overboard. 
And then we know from the rest of the story he's swallowed up by, a, by, by the whale. Uh, and, okay. Um, and upon Jonah being cast into the sea, the storm stops and the pagan sailors fear God. Okay. Uh, any, any moral lessons in this story right here? <clears throat> uh, one lesson I can think of is not a good idea to run away from God. Okay. <laughs> Jonah's a prophet of God. He should have known better. And God gave him an assignment that scared him, that frightened him. The idea that he's going to go single-handedly into Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and call the people to repent and call down the judgment of God upon that city. And he doesn't want to go for whatever reason. If he's scared, I don't know if he's scared of the people or he doesn't want the people to repent. It doesn't say, but he doesn't want to go. So <clears throat> I think of what it says in, in Psalm 139. It's a good reminder to all of us. It's uh, designated. 138 in the Septuagint. I'll start reading in verse 7. For David says, Where could I go from your spirit or flee from your face? If I should ascend into heaven, you'd be there. If I should descend into Hades, you should be there. If I should take up my wings at dawn and pitch a camp the furthest part of the sea, even there, your hand would lead me, and your right hand would hold me. And I said, even perhaps darkness shall cover me, but the night shall be light to my delight. For darkness shall not be dark because of you, and the night shall be as bright as day. Its darkness also shall be its best light. So basically, no matter where you go, no matter how high, how deep, how far you go, it is impossible to run away from God. So Jonah figured that out when they woke him up in the boat that his plan to run away from God wasn't going to work out. So you better deal with God, and if God has something that he wants you to do, you better get serious about doing it, <laughs> and don't, don't think you can run away from God successfully. God sees everything. He is everywhere, and you cannot escape from him. So uh, perhaps we can learn from Jonah's mistakes so that we don't have to repeat the same one ourselves. Now let's consider the, the possible allegorical significance of this passage. Take a look. at the, think, Let's consider the gospel account. So the main character in the story is a prophet from Galilee who grew up right next to Nazareth. He's from there. This one man is set apart by God to go on a dangerous, daring, far-reaching mission, and at stake was the repentance and salvation of thousands of Gentiles. The next thing that reminds me of Jesus, and this, this may seem odd to you, the prophet doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go. He tries to get out of it. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 6, when, when the Lord says, Who can I send? Isaiah says, Here am I. Send me. Okay? That's not what Jonah said, and that's actually not what Jesus said. When Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew chapter, in Luke 22 and Matthew 26, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He did not want to drink from the cup. He did not want to go to the cross. However, different from Jonah, he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus did not want to go, just like Jonah did, on the mission that he was, he was going to go through. Jesus agonized and prayed intensely for hours in the garden to be spared from his mission to go to the cross. He didn't want to do it. But he submitted to the will of his father and did it for our sake. And then after the wake-up call, think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Somebody was sleeping there too. After the wake-up call, things progressed rather rapidly in the story of Jesus' passion. Jonah is asked in this story three questions. He's asked 
What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What, what country and people are you from? And then finally, he's asked, what did you do? And after Jesus is found in the Garden of Gethsemane and is brought before Pilate, John chapter 18, he's asked about his occupation. He says, are you a king? He's asked where he is from. Pilate asks him, where do you come from? In John 19, verse 10. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 6, Pilate asks him, he heard that he was, a, he, he was from Galilee, he said, are you a Galilean? Pilate asks him, uh, where do you come from? I'm sorry, Pilate asks him, and finally Pilate asks him, what did you do? And John chapter 18 and verse 35, which is very similar to the question, especially if you look at the word in Greek, it's almost identical. So he's asked the same questions. He's asked the questions. Where did you come from? What people are you from? What did you do? Okay. And what's your occupation? Are you a king? He is the reason for the great tumult. Remember when Jesus is brought before Pilate, there's an angry crowd. They're getting angrier and more upset all the time. And he is the reason why they, all the, uh, the tumult has come about. And when the sailors ask Jonah, what do we need to do to calm down this tempestuous sea? Jonah says two things. He says, take me up. Lift me up and cast me into the sea. There's two things, not one. Take me up and cast me into the sea. Jesus said that in order for us to be saved, that he would have to be lifted up by men. John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. John 12, 32 and 33, he said, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, signifying by what death he would die. In Acts 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah chapter 53 in the passages following Septuagint, the famous passage about the crucifixion, and it says, His life is taken from the earth. It's the same word in Greek as, as we see in, in Jonah. His, his life is lifted up from the earth following Septuagint. So Jesus had to be lifted up to the cross and cast into death. Cast into the sea of death. The other thing I notice, uh, Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. He tried to find a way out. The sailors on the boat didn't want to cast Jonah into the sea to what they consider to be certain death, and they try to find a way out, but it doesn't work, and things are only getting worse. So reluctantly, in desperation, they feel no, they have no choice but to hand him over to death. And then finally, those who handed the prophet over to death were concerned. They didn't want the blood of an innocent, righteous man on their hands. Compare what the mariners say in Jonah 1.14. We don't want the blood of this man on our hands. It says that when Pilate, Pilate said in Matthew 27.24, I'm innocent of the blood of this person you see to it as he's washing his hands. He want to wash his hands of the... the uh, uh, of the guilt of the blood. Neither one of them wanted the blood of their hands. Uh, his commentary on Jonah, Jerome said, Great is the faith of the sailors. And do not hold over us, they say, the blood of an innocent man. Does not the voice of the seamen seem to us to be the confession of Pilate, who washes his hands and says, I'm clean of the blood of this man. Another parallel with Jesus. One man had to be sacrificed to save everyone else. 
That's what, that was the prophecy that Caiaphas had said in John chapter 11, verses 49 to 50. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider it expedient for us that one man should die for the, for, uh, for the people, not that the whole people should perish. And he didn't say it his own authority, but being high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Better for one man to die to save everyone else. And that's exactly what Jonah was saying. And upon the prophet being handed over to death, there is a, there is a change in nature that takes place. As he's cast into the sea, all of a sudden the sea becomes completely calm. What happened when Jesus died on the cross and was handed over to death? In Matthew 27, starting in verse 50, it says, Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the temple of the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked. The rocks were split. The graves were opened. Many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Wasn't this the same reaction that the men on the boat had? They saw when they cast him into the water that the sea became completely calm. They saw the signs in nature and they feared God and made vows to him. So, a few parallels there between, between the story of Jesus. So I think we're building the case that this is a full-blown allegory. This is all about the life. This is all about the death, the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. It's all, it's all woven into the text of the stories and the details here. Let's continue in chapter 2. The break is a little different in the Masoretic text from the Septuagint, so I'm reading from the Septuagint-based version. Now the Lord commanded... A huge sea creature, that would be a whale, to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. And from the belly of the whale, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God and said, I cried out in my affliction to the Lord my God, and he heard my voice. Out of the belly of Hades... You heard the cry of my voice. You cast me in the depths of the heart of the sea. The rivers encompassed me. All your surging waters and your waves passed over me. And I said, I've been driven away from your sight. Shall I look with favor towards your holy temple? Water is poured out over me to my soul. The lowest depth encircled me. My head plunged into the clefts of the mountains. I descended into the earth, the bars of which, which are everlasting barriers. Yet let my life ascend from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul was failing from me, I remembered the Lord. May my prayer be brought up to you into your holy temple. Those who follow vanity and lies forsake their own mercy, but with a voice of thanksgiving and praise I will sacrifice to you. As much as I vowed, I shall offer up to you, to you, the Lord of deliverance. Then the Lord commanded the sea creature, the whale, and it cast up Jonah onto dry land. So, uh, I substituted the word whale in there. Uh, Jerome and his, Jerome is a famous Bible translator who translated the, the Vulgate, and he was looking at the Greek and the Latin, he said, you know, the Hebrew word can be a nondescript. It can be any some creature from the, from the sea. He said, but the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint, he said, that means whale. That's, that's what that means. And so you're reading from that. That's, that's a literal translation, even according to Jerome. Now, the, the, the craziest verse in the story, to me, is not Jonah getting swallowed by a whale or getting spit out by the whale. The, the most unusual verse, the most disturbing verse in the whole story, on which the whole story uh, turns, to me, is in verse 3. Okay? In verse 3, chapter 2 and verse 3, this to me is the, is the, strange, uh, the strangest verse in the whole story. Starting in verse 2, it says, From the belly of the sea creature, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God and said, I cried out in my affliction to the Lord my God, and he heard my voice. Out of the belly of Hades you heard the, the cry of my voice. So, thinking, Jonah, where are you? 
He says he's in the belly of the whale. And then it says, out of the belly of Hades you heard my voice. What's Hades? Hades is the place where the souls of the dead go. And, and that's where they go. And, and uh, uh, Luke 16, that's the, the wristband of Lazarus are in Hades. And where did Jesus, where was Jesus for the three days? Where was his spirit for the three days before he was resurrected? His body was in the tomb. His spirit was in Hades. How do we know that? We know that from Acts chapter 2 where Peter explains, Peter quotes from Psalm Psalm 16 says, You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you let your, my body see decay. So Jesus descended into Hades, just like it says in the Apostles' Creed, and he ascended on the third day. So his spirit was in Hades. So Jonah is crying out, and he says, I'm, I'm crying out from the belly of Hades. So where, where is he? is he? Is he in the realm? Some people think, oh, he must have died and gone to Hades. But Jesus says he was in the belly of the whale. That's what Jesus says. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is going to Hades, the heart of the earth, but the son, but, uh, but Jonah was in the belly of a whale. So this is the strange verse here when he says, I cry out to you from the belly of Hades. So all of a sudden, that, that just, that it's like all of a sudden we just, we, just, we just moved into a completely different dimension here. It's like, where are you? And who are you? Who are you really here? And, and this, is, this to me is the key to the whole story, is that uh, this, is, is, this is a wonderful prophecy about Jesus, is that Jonah is crying out here figuratively from Hades, a place of, where, where the dead go, and Sheol in the, in the, in the Hebrew. The prayer of Jonah, to me, reminds me of kind of a mashup of several of the Psalms. Now, David is, at one point, is running away from Saul, and he's out in the desert. I don't remember any stories that talk about David being on a boat <laughs> out in the ocean someplace. So he's running around the desert, fleeing from Saul. And in Psalm 18, he's, he is, he's crying out, and, he's, and the language that he uses is like, I'm at the bottom of the ocean. I'm in the depths of the sea. Can you rescue me? And so Jonah is borrowing from the Psalms like this, that uh, when, he, when, he, is, when he, is, he is literally, he's in the bottom of the sea, he's in, he's in the belly of the, of the whale, and he's borrowing this language from David in the Psalms from when David was in trouble and he felt like he was at the bottom of the sea. And he says, God, can you come down here and rescue me, pull me out of the terrible situation where I am? Also, I think of Psalm 69, a famous prophecy. It contains famous prophecies about Jesus on the cross. And it starts off with, Save me, O God, for the waters flood my soul. I'm stuck in the mire of the sea. And then in verse 16 of that psalm, it says, Let not a storm of water drown me, neither let the deep swallow me up. So this is the, the picture is someone feels like they're completely overwhelmed in an impossible situation. It's like they're in the depths of the sea. Okay. Now I want to I switch gears here a little bit. Uh, every time the story, I taught the story of Jonah in, in the past, many, many years ago, somebody, there will always be somebody in the crowd who would ask a question. And they say, wait a minute. Jesus said that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Heart of the earth is Hades. Okay. When did Jesus die? Friday afternoon. When was he raised? Sunday morning. How do you get three days and three nights out of that? You can't. Okay? Think about that. So, I don't know if it's ever crossed, crossed your mind before, but Friday night to Sunday morning is maybe a day and a half? You know, how do you get three days and three nights out of that? And this bothered me for years. And I thought, I want to teach a lesson on Jonah, but if I can't answer that question, I have no business teaching this class. So that's why this has been deferred a few years to sort, to sort that one out. Okay, now you know the reason why. Now, if you ask me, if you ask me uh, six years ago, what are you working on, Chuck? I'm working on a lesson on Jonah, and, and here, here it is. So, 
So what's the deal with that? I mean, it sounds like, how do you, how do you stretch 48 hours or so, not even 48 hours, a day and a half, into, into three days and three nights? Um, well, I'll tell you what some people, some people try to change, change the, the schedule. Say, well, you know, Jesus, everybody thinks he died on Friday, but he must have died on Thursday sometime. Or maybe there was a double Sabbath. Or They come up with some explanation that gets Jesus not dying on Good Friday. All right, to try to, to try to help the Bible out here, okay? Um, John 19.31 says the Jews wanted to make sure Jesus was dead before the start of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday, the last day of the week. So obviously, he's crucified on a Friday. So he's crucified before sundown on Friday. Luke 23, verses 44 to 46, it said darkness came over the land from noon until 3 p.m., Basically, the sixth to the ninth hour, and then that's at that time Jesus died. So Jesus died at three in the afternoon, roughly on, on Friday. In John 20, verse 1, it says, He rose the morning of the first day of the week. That's Sunday, it's the first day of the week. So, and, and the early Christians understood it this way. Justin Martyr, his first apology, is explaining to the Romans about Jesus as he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn. Okay, which would be Saturn Day, all right? So he was crucified on a Friday. He's explaining to the Romans. On the day after that of Saturn, which is that of the sun, or Sunday, he appeared to the apostles and disciples. So the idea of Jesus crucified on Friday and raised on Sunday was understood clearly in the early church, just as it says in the scriptures. So don't let somebody tell you Jesus died on Thursday to try to get the three days and three nights out of that. That doesn't work. Now, the other thing is, it says three days and three nights, one place in the New Testament. The, the term that's generally used in, in referring to the resurrection was on the third day. Okay? On the third day, or and I think one, one or two places it says in three days. In John 2, he says in three days, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. So, but generally the term that's used is on the third day. Now, the scripture, this, this, the statement on the third day, and I'll, I'll put examples in, in the notes here. It's Old Testament, New Testament, wherever it says on the third day, that means day after tomorrow. Today, tomorrow, today is the first day, tomorrow is the second day, the day after, to, day after tomorrow is the third day. So if he died on Friday, on the third day is Sunday, all right? Friday is the first day today, Saturday is the second day, Sunday is the third day. So if he died, if he rose on the third day, that's Sunday. So we're, we're good with all those, those scriptures, but we still have a problem with the three days and three nights. Uh, so yeah, I don't want to just turn to some modern commentary. Somebody's going to come up with a nice, smart answer to explain away. I want to think, okay, historically, what was the historic understanding of this? What, how did the early Christians underst understand this? And I ran into... Two explanations, both of them are early, and and you can I'll explain I'll explain my favorite one second. Okay, this is this is the one that most people would hold to is a, is a concept called synecdoche, which means any part represents the whole thing. So the day and the night belong to each other. So for example, if I say you know if we're if I say all hands on deck. They don't, I don't just mean I want your hands. It means the whole body. But you're representing the body by mentioning the hands. So you're using the expression of a part to refer to the whole thing. So, so one explanation that several of the early Christian writers talk about that they favor is the idea that the day and the night belong to each other and any part of that represents the whole thing. So that's one explanation. And uh, there are a few early Christian uh, writers explain that. Uh, second explanation, which is also pretty early. Okay, this is, this is uh, Eusebius, writing around the year uh, 320, gospel problems and solutions. So I have lots of gospel problems, and I wanted Eusebius to answer. So I got this book, and actually, this, was, this is in the early 300s. People were asking Eusebius this question. He's like the Bible answer man. And they say, What's with the three days and three nights if he died on Friday and rose on Sunday? They ask him that question. And he, so he gives, he says, well, 
There are a couple of different explanations. He gives one, the synecdoche, a part represents the whole thing, and then, which is the one that he personally likes, but then he gives one that I like better. He says, but some people hold to this. He says, this is from uh, his uh, letter to Marinus, uh, uh, number 4.5. He said, others make the preparation day, which is Friday, okay, that's when you prepare the food on Friday. Others make the preparation day into two because there had been night and then day again. Then the whole Sabbath day and night. So think about this. So God brought darkness on the land in the middle of the day. He basically inserted an artificial night into the day. And it says some people will make that into an extra day. So basically he done so it's, it's So there's the artificial night that God created. Between noon and three, it was lights out. The sun was turned to darkness. And uh, so then you have night, day, night, day, night, day. So that's three days and three nights with God inserting on Good Friday in the afternoon and artificial night. I think that's pretty cool. I like that one. And uh, that's that's the one I like. Uh, And actually it fits with a prophecy in in Amos chapter 8. Uh, which a number of early Christian writers tied in with the crucifixion. It shall, it, this is Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. It says, It shall come to pass that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. And there you go. That's, that's, that's Good Friday right there. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and I will make it like mourning for an only son. It's a powerful prophecy. God's gonna, God's gonna shut the, He's gonna, He's gonna shut down the light of the sun at noon, which happened on the day that Jesus was crucified, and a time of mourning for as one for an only son. Um, and some people, some uh, early Christian writers reference uh, Jeremiah fifteen nine in connection with that as well. So anyway, there, there are at least two reasonable explanations. I told you which one I like best, but there are two reasonable explanations why. Both are true that Jesus rose on the third day, which is the day after tomorrow. And you can also say that after three days and three nights, he was raised. So, conclusions and takeaways from all this. Jesus did, just like he said, die Suffer, die, and he was raised on the third day in fulfillment of the prophecies. Because the story of Jonah is an Eastern-style prophecy. It's an allegory. It's the life of Christ is baked into it. And the giveaway to me is in, in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 3, where he says, I'm, I'm crying out to you from Hades, which is impossible. Okay. Uh, that that that's that's the tip off here. That this is there, we're talking about somebody else and something else other than just the story here. Uh, I hope that this encourages you to open your mind up to significant Eastern style prophecies that are included in the Old Testament. We just discussed one of them today. So Jonah the Well is a true story. It's a miracle, but it has tremendous allegorical significance. The prophet from Galilee called by God to a life-saving mission that would save the lives of many Gentiles. He was the only man for the job. There was no plan B. God didn't say, well, Jonah doesn't want to go. Who's up next? Let me find somebody else. He was the only man that God God would would allow to take that job on. After the wake-up call, the three questions that he was asked. Uh, The only way for everyone to be saved was for this one man to be handed over to death then he had to be lifted up and cast into death. Those who were involved did not want the guilt of his blood on their hands. There were miraculous signs in nature upon his death. And the Gentiles who saw those signs responded by fearing God. He spent three days into Hades before coming out bodily alive. And at the end, many Gentiles would be saved through his powerful message. And in the next lesson, we're, we're, we're uh, running out of time here. We'll take a look at the story. You can look at this on your own. The story of Jesus in the boat in Matthew 8 and Mark 4. And there's also in Luke. 
and you might notice a few parallels there. Storm comes up on the water, and someone, the prophet from Galilee, is asleep in the boat. So just, just a tip off there to take a look at that. And Jesus descended into Hades and rose on the third day. If we follow him, we can look forward to the same. We may be there longer than three days, but uh, that's the pattern that we will all follow if we follow him. And then, of course, don't even think of running away from God. It's not going to end well if you do. Amen. Amen.